I invite you also to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3 this morning. Hebrews chapter 3. Sometimes when you're preaching uh, through the Advent season or Christmas season, you stop your series and you start a reflection on uh, the birth of Jesus Christ. And uh, as we started into the book of Hebrews, what I noticed is that uh, many of the texts in chapter 2 were about Jesus becoming flesh. And so we just kept our series going. And uh, we're going to do the same tonight or today. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, where the author of Hebrews will give an, a comparison between Jesus and Moses, and I think it'll be very edifying to us as we, as we consider Christ and his birth during this Christmas season. If you remember, uh, I said that we are starting into, or we're in the middle of, the second major section of the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is set up like a sermon. There are five points, five main points, each section starts with doctrine or doctrinal truth and then leads to a warning. And so we are in the second of those doctrinal sections and we're preparing for, in the middle of chapter 3, a section on uh, a warning where the author of Hebrews will warn his original readers. In this section of doctrine, uh, starting in chapter 2, the author of Hebrews wanted us to consider the benefits of Christ's incarnational ministry. He came, he established a brotherhood, uh, we are his sons and daughters, he's established closeness to us, he can relate to us in our temptation. Uh, we learned all of this, these are all blessings of the incarnation of Jesus. As we turn the page to chapter 3 in our Bibles, or uh, Hebrews 3, beginning of this chapter, he wants us to continue our focus on Jesus, but now he's going to look at the greatness of Jesus when you compare him to the prophet Moses. Before looking closely, though, at Christ's greatness, I want to draw your attention to two very important pieces or qualities of the bigger context of the surrounding chapters in Hebrews 3 and 4. And so uh, to, to help us see how our text today that we're going to look at, Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, fits in the bigger picture, I want to look at these two qualities of the bigger context. Quality number one is that Hebrews 3 and 4 are one section that are arranged around multiple citations of one Old Testament passage. Multiple citations of one Old Testament text. So look in your Bible at Hebrews 3, verse 7. It says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, then there's a comma, and then quotation marks. There's a long quote from the Old Testament. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my work for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as they swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest, end quote. This is a, a citation of Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. And next week, we'll look at it very closely. However, this psalm is not only quoted directly here, it's alluded to and, and cited all throughout the rest of chapters 3 and 4. So if you just look a little bit later in your Bible at, at verse 12, it says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. That passage was about unbelieving hearts, and so the author is going to draw exhortation from that citation. 
Then look in verse 15, it's cited again. As it is said, quote, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. There it's quoted again. A little bit later on in verse 17, he says, and with whom was he provoked for 40 years? He alludes back to that psalm citation again. He does the same in verse 18 when he says, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? He's still talking about Psalm 95, but it doesn't end with Hebrews 3. You look forward in your Bibles to Hebrews 4 and verse 3. In the middle of that verse, well, actually start at the beginning, it says, for we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, quote, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, end quote. It's the same text from Psalm 95. You see it again at the end of verse 5 in chapter 4. And again, in this passage, he says, they shall not enter my rest. And one more time in verse 7, again, he appoints a certain day, comma, quote, today, end quote. These frequent allusions and citations of Psalm 95 in Hebrews 3 and 4 form the basis then of an extended comparison that he is going to make between Hebrews' original readers, the author of Hebrews' readers, and the wilderness generation of the Old Testament people who were under the leadership of Moses. Having said that, there's one other quality that I want you to see in, in, these, in the surrounding or bigger context I think is important. By using this quotation of Psalm 95, the author creates two more comparisons for Jesus. He creates two more comparisons for Jesus. If you remember one thing about Hebrews, hopefully you remember, you know, there's, there's a lot we've learned, a lot of intricacies, little pieces, and I love talking with you about like what stuck out to you in the sermons or the Bible reading. There's a lot to learn in Hebrews. But one of the things you should, we should all get is the author loves to compare people to Jesus. He loves lining people up alongside of Jesus just so he can make comparison. When I was going through uh, my doctoral studies, I met a student who was writing on a particular subject. And with this student, every conversation that you had with him was about his subject. He somehow kept getting back to that topic. Every article he has written in the meanwhile, every book review that he has written has been on the subject. That's why my cousin and I called him the ceremonial law guy. It was all about the ceremonial law, pieces of the ceremonial law. It didn't matter what you were talking about, he got to his topic, the ceremonial law. Have you ever met someone like that before? They just had one particular area of knowledge, something they knew really well, and so they just found a way in the conversation. It always came back to that area. You know, every post on social media is about what they know. They have to talk about it because they know a lot about it or it's important to them. Well, the author of Hebrews is the Jesus guy. He's the Jesus guy. He loves to compare Jesus to everything and anyone else. And the fruit of this comparison is entirely enriching for us. He spent some much time, and of course the Spirit leads him to write these things. So uh, he has already compared the Son to angels and prophets in Hebrews 1 and 2. Now he lines up two others in Hebrews 3 and 4. They are Moses and Joshua. Joshua chapter 4 verse 8, you'll see some things about him there. 
Together, these two men, Moses and Joshua, formed the leadership of the Israelite people in their wilderness journey as they went from Egypt to the Promised Land. Both men, although imperfect, were used by God in significant ways to take the people into the land of rest that God had promised to them. Moses leads the people out of Egypt into the wilderness, and Joshua finishes it off. Joshua, by God's grace, uh, takes them across the Jordan River and into the Promised Land. And so this duo, for the Jewish people, would be an example of dynamic, difference-making leadership during one of their most important moments in history. So the author of Hebrews can't wait to compare these two men to the pioneer of his salvation, Jesus Christ. So as we turn our attention to the beginning of the section, we'll look at uh, a section about Moses, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And here the, the author makes a comparison with Moses, not only to expand our understanding of Moses' role in leading the people and Jesus' superiority, but he also intends for this to affect us, for it to change us. In these verses, I believe the main point that he is communicating is that his readers should find incentive for their own fidelity in the faithfulness of Jesus. Believers should find incentive for their own fidelity in the faithfulness of Jesus. Have you ever observed someone else before, something about their lifestyle that motivated you? Perhaps it was their diet, their eating habits, the workout. You saw the choices that they made. You saw how it changed them, and so it motivated you to follow. Today, we will look at Christ's fidelity so that our fidelity grows. Would you look with me at Hebrews 3, verses 1 through 6? It says, Therefore, holy brothers, who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. That's the main point of this text, consider Jesus. The apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of everything, of all things, is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in him. I think the main outline of this text is pretty simple. You can arrange it topically. The main outline uh, focuses on three people. Moses, Jesus, and us, the readers of Hebrews. And so I want to just work through this text and see what we can learn about Moses, then Jesus, then us. First, we start with Moses. Moses was a faithful, the text says, as a servant in God's house. I think it's difficult for, for us to exaggerate the importance of Moses to Judaism in the first century. Jewish people normally believe things like, they believe that all of Moses' prophecies were true. 
simply because it came from Moses. They believed, and you could read, that some of their rabbis professed that Moses was the greatest prophet of all time. He brought to them the law upon which their theological system was based. Some rabbis even thought that Moses was sinless, although it's honestly quite uh, humorous to see all the gymnastics that they have to play in certain Old Testament texts to keep Moses sinless. The original readers then of Hebrews, I think, would be tempted to see Moses as the one who brought the definitive word from God. In other words, I think these readers, Jews in the first century, would have a very high view of Moses. So in order to win the heart of these Jewish professing believers, the author says only good things about Moses. That is, the author doesn't say anything negative about him in chapter 3 here, or anywhere in the whole epistle for that matter. Chapter 3, verse 2, in the middle of the verse, he says, Moses was faithful in all of God's house. Chapter 3 and verse 5, he says, Moses was faithful as a servant to testify the things that were to come. Later on in the epistle, in chapter 11, he'll even use Moses' faithful example to encourage the readers to step outside the camp and bear reproach for the name of Jesus Christ. He uses Moses' example. So I first want to look at Moses. Text says in verse 2, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. That's the first description he gives of Moses. He was faithful trustworthy or reliable as a servant in the household of God. Now the word faithful is a hook word, and the writer of Hebrews often does this. When he moves from one paragraph to another, he'll take a word that was mentioned in the first paragraph, and he'll use it again as a basis for the second paragraph. So up in your Bible in chapter 2 and verse 17, it says, therefore we ha- he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. They're talking about Jesus. He was faithful. Here in our chapter, Moses' faithfulness, I think, uh, deals with his leading of the Israelite people. He is faithful as a servant in God's house. Now, I want you to see, though, that that phrase in chapter 2, or chapter 3, at the end of verse 2, is actually an allusion to an Old Testament passage. There are three times today we're going to go back to the Old Testament. This is number one. So turn back to Numbers 12. Turn back to Numbers 12 for a moment. So the text says, Moses was faithful in all God's house. And this is a citation of Numbers chapter 12. When you come to Numbers 11 and 12, this is a section I preached to you not too long ago. It's amazing how the Lord does that. He kind of, I didn't have any, um, I wasn't thinking Hebrews when I was preaching Numbers 11 and 12. As we went through Numbers 11 and 12, we find out that Moses starts coming up to uh, opposition. People are beginning to oppose him and his leadership of the people. It starts with a forced move at the beginning of chapter 11. Then they start complaining about the fact that they have to just eat manna. They have no garlics and leeks and onions and all the things of Egypt that they used to have and eat freely. That, of course, leads Moses, if you remember the sermons we did on this, it leads Moses to complain about the ministry and the fact that uh, he had to lead two million uh, complainers. He said, did I give birth to all these people? That you would say that I would lead them like this. Yet the complaining is not finished, and we got to chapter 12, we find out that even Moses' own family complained against him. Miriam and Aaron 
complain about the wife he marries. They complain about his leadership. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed only spoken through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, come out you three to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, hear my words, is there a prophet among, or if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream, not so with my servant Moses, quote, he is faithful in all my house, end quote. That's the Hebrew text. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow, and Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, do not punish us, because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord, O God, please heal her, please. The rest of the text, of course, she is healed after seven days of being unclean on the outside or outskirts of the camp. If you remember this story, I just read it again, just, so, just to remind you. Although Moses had seen the glory of God, so much so that, if you remember, his face was affected. It, there was a glow on his face when he came down from meeting with God. Although that was true, Miriam and Aaron complain about his leadership. So in verses 6 through 8 that we just read, God defends Moses. He says, you know, other prophets, they hear about me in visions and dreams that I give to them, but not with Moses. He, he, see, he saw my glory directly, and he, hear, he heard me clearly. And then in the middle of that defense, in verse 7, he says this about Moses. He was faithful in all my household. This is a text the author of Hebrews is alluding to. So the author of Hebrews I believe, is not falling into the trap of criticizing Moses. God himself said that Moses was faithful. And the author of Hebrews will continue that. Now go back very briefly to Hebrews before we look at one other Old Testament text. So go back to Hebrews for a moment. And I want you to see one particular way that Moses was faithful in God's house. And the author of Hebrews just tells us this. So you saw in verse 10, or verse 2, Hebrews 3, 2, who was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Then in verse 5, he repeats that. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. To testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Moses was faithful, in particular, to testify of that which would come later. I think this phrase highlights Moses' role as a prophet, and uh, I don't have a better word for this. I did turn it into a noun. A prophet and a pointer. Okay. I don't even know if that's good. You can tell me later if you don't like it. It's a prophet and a pointer. He prophesies of what will occur, and he points forward to someone 
who will come who will be greater than himself. He's a prophet and a pointer. I believe that there's another Old Testament text that can help us here. So go back to Deuteronomy 18 for a second. Deuteronomy 18. In this passage, Moses, uh, in Deuteronomy, he's reiterating the law a second time. The chapter's just before Deuteronomy 18. He has some things to say about the Passover, about different feasts and ceremonies. He's helping them. Uh, He's laying the basis for all of these very important feasts and ceremonies and days in the Jewish calendar. But then in chapter 18, he gives Moses new revelation about a prophet that will come. And I just want you to see this in your Bibles. Look at Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. It says, this is Moses talking to the children of Israel. It says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired to the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let us not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among the brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he will speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So Moses was faithful in many ways, but one of the ways he was faithful was to testify that there would be someone who would come after him who would be like him. You see, Moses was a reliable witness of someone else, a great prophet that would come and bring the words of God to the children of Israel. By the way, don't you love how he says he'll come from the brothers, from the brothers. almost reminds you of Hebrews. Okay, so... As we go through this this text, we see here that this someone else, from my perspective, this someone else who's going to be a prophet like Moses who comes and will speak God's word, this someone else is where the author of Hebrews turns next. Okay, so back to Hebrews 3. One more time. Go back to Hebrews 3. So what do we learn about Moses? He was faithful as a servant in all of God's household, and he was faithful to testify of things that would come later. I think he's faithful to testify of one great prophet who would come and bring the words of God. But not only was Moses faithful, this text says Jesus was faithful as a son over God's house. It's actually, I think, the main point of the paragraph. The author wants us to consider Jesus. That's the main verb in verse one. Consider Jesus. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. We've already learned about the sonship of Jesus in chapters 1 and 2. Here, from the outset, we we see that we're supposed to pay close attention to him again in this comparison to Moses. By my count, I think there are at least three outstanding things about Jesus we should see. And we'll go through these very quickly as they come up in the text. First, Jesus was the apostle and high priest of our uh, confession. That's what it says at the end of verse 1. Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of of our confession. Here the word apostle captures Christ as a faithful messenger from God. 
Of course, an apostle, maybe you learned this when you were a little child. For some of you who grew up in church, you learned an apostle is, an, is a sent one, right? One who is sent. And so an apostle would be one sent from a superior with a message. This describes Jesus then as God's messenger bringing his words to us. He's the apostle. Then it says he's the high priest. I think picturing Christ as faithfully representing man to God. A priest in the Old Covenant scriptures spoke of one who represented man to God, a go-between. And here Jesus is our go-between. As John MacArthur says it well, I think he says, Jesus brings God to man, that's apostle, and he brings man to God, that's his function as a priest. Now it's very interesting to me that this is not the first time that the author of Hebrews mentions the priesthood of Jesus. Here he says he's the high priest of our confession. Earlier in chapter 2, he called him a faithful high priest. And I, I want us to think about this for just a moment. I want to consider for a moment how a Jewish reader might read the statement about Jesus being a faithful and merciful high priest. When we read this, I think it doesn't hit us the way it would a Jewish reader in the first century. We don't appreciate its significance. Israel, however, had endured the ministry of many unfaithful and manipulative priests. And it wasn't just true in the first century. It wasn't just true of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and everything we would read about them in the first century. It's true from the very beginning. You remember the whole way back in the Old Testament scripture, the sons of Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, who offer a strange fire in the altar, and they're consumed. Children of Israel endured multitudes of priests who were not faithful, who were not trustworthy. There's actually one powerful example of this, I think, may have been on the mind of the Hebrew readers as they read this, and that's the last Old Testament text I want you to go to. So turn back in your Bible to 1 Samuel 2. 1 Samuel 2. Uh, here we'll read about Eli, the high priest, and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And I think that there's potentially uh, an allusion to this text uh, in Hebrews. So go back here for one last Old Testament text. I want to read about the unfaithfulness of these priests in its original context. We'll start in verse 12. I'll read that verse, and then we're going to skip down to verse 22. 1 Samuel 2, verse 12. It says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. <laughs> what an opening, right? <laughs> well, tell us what you really think about them, uh, author of Scripture. They're worthless men. They don't even know the Lord. I want to talk about unfaithful priests. And go to verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear, that you're, uh, evil, I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is, is no good report that I hear the people of Israel spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against Yahweh, who can intercede for him? But the uh, but they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of Yahweh to put them to death. 
Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and favor with the Lord and also with man. Verse 27. And there came with him a man of God, and there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I command for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourself on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, Yahweh, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever, but now... Yahweh declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming. Well, I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress, you will look with envious eyes uh, on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. It shall be a sign for you. Both of them shall die on the same day. Verse 35. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who's left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver and a loaf of bread, and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Some of you might be thinking, well, this is a very interesting story. I don't know how it relates to Hebrews 3. I want you to look again at verse 35. I will. See, you have these two very unfaithful priests, a line of unfaithful priests. Israel is used to having unfaithful priests. But God promises, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind I will build him a sure house. He shall go, go in and out before my anointed forever. Here God promises uh, some uh, important things. God promises two things. A faithful priest who will have a house that will be unbroken. Although Samuel might be a partial fulfillment of this in some way, this promise for a faithful priest, I think it is fulfilled ultimately when Jesus Christ himself comes later as a direct fulfillment of this, as a faithful high priest. So let's go back to Hebrews one last time. We go back to Hebrews, what do we learn about Jesus? We learn Jesus was a faithful apostle and high priest of our confession. Then a little bit later on, down in verse 3, we learn this about Jesus. It says, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Here the author, I think, is getting to his point. The author does not tell you exactly who thought this or who should consider this. I think he really states it in a way that anyone, anyone who would look at Jesus and look at Moses should be able to know 
that Jesus is of more significance. And he gives an illustration of why that's true. He compares Moses to a house, and he compares Jesus to the builder of the house. And he says the builder, the architect of the house, is always worthy of more honor than the house itself. The mastermind behind the, behind the house is of more significance than what he has created. And so when you're applying that analogy here to Jesus and Moses, it's basically saying this. Jesus is superior to Moses because he made Moses. He's the builder of the house, and Moses is a part of the house, the people of God. Therefore, Jesus made Moses. He's of more weight or significance. Then you get down to verse 6 in your Bibles, and you learn one last thing about Jesus, verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. In this final statement about Jesus, he again compares him to Moses. Moses was a faithful servant in God's household. Jesus is a faithful son over God's house. I take God's house here to be the people of God in the Old and New Covenant. Moses was faithful. He lived as a servant in the midst of the, the people of God in the Old Covenant. Jesus ministers to the people of God in the New Covenant. I think one important difference, though, between the two, if you're reading it, you may have caught it, is the difference in the prepositions, right? Moses is a faithful servant in God's house. Jesus is a faithful son over God's house. I think Moses being faithful in God's house speaks of the sphere of Moses' influence, the place where he ministered among the people of God in the Old Covenant. He was faithful as a member or a servant in the household of God. Jesus, however, was faithful over God's house. This speaks of his authority. He's not just a household servant. He's the son and the heir, then, of, of the whole house. So this is Jesus, right? He is faithful over God's house. He is of more glory than Moses, and he's the apostle and high priest of our profession. But we're not done. There's one last group I want you to see in this text. I said this text is about three people, Moses, Jesus, and us. And so what I want to do to end is I want to look at verse 1 and verse 6 and see how the author describes his readers. In the first century, it would be the Jewish believers in Jesus Christ. Today, it would be us. Look with me at how they're described. There are three descriptions of them. Look at verse one. Therefore, holy brothers. Stop here for a moment. Let's think of those two words. One, we'll start with the second one first. Brothers. Where do you get that word? It's from chapter two. Look at the end of chapter two. It says Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might be a faithful and merciful high priest. Now he's extending it to describe it of these same people, brothers, followers of Jesus Christ. But how about the word holy? Holy. Well, that's a word he's used before as well. It's a hook word that goes back to the same passage. You look at chapter 2, verse 11. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. We're almost done, but just look back there. It says, for he who sanctifies... And those who are sanctified, you could translate, those who are holy. Okay, so what we learn in chapter 2, verse 11, is there's one faithful high priest, son of God, who, who is holy and who makes people holy. But now we know a little bit more about how he did that. 
For if you look at the end of verse 17, the way he can call us holy brothers is that he made propitiation for our sins. That is, he took upon him God's righteous wrath against our sins. He satisfied it so that now we are called holy brothers. Keep reading in chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. second way he describes us as sharers in this heavenly calling. Jesus has gone forth up to heaven. He's reigning and ruling. And, and because of that, we too are called. We have a heavenly calling to join with him one day. We're partners in a heavenly calling. But I'll close by drawing your attention to how he describes us in the end of this paragraph, verse 6. It says, and... Verse 6, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Here the author takes all of the glorious truths about Moses and Israel and Jesus, and he applies them to his readers at the end. See, this is a text meant to affect us. And what he says about us is very important. He says, first of all, we are God's house. We are God's house. I think this speaks of we are God's holy dwelling as new covenant believers. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Our church is his temple. But this is true of us, the text says, if we meet two conditions. It's only true of us that we are God's house if two things are true. Number one, if indeed we hold fast our confidence. The idea of holding fast here speaks of keeping a tight grip on something, and here the the thing we're keeping tight grip on is our confidence or our boldness. He then says this is true of us if we hold fast our boasting in our hope. You see that in the end of verse 6? Our boasting in our hope. So we are God's holy dwelling if we continue to rejoice or boast in our hope. And while we're out of time, uh, I think it's pretty simple, right? Like, so who do you think the author of Hebrews would say is our hope? Remember, he's the Jesus guy. (laughs) It's like the right answer to every question. What or who is our hope? Jesus. So in our passage, the author confronts readers who are making a choice between Moses and Messiah. So you think of these original readers, we might think that this should not be a hard decision for them, right? But I think it was. For following Moses was a part of their national identity and their culture. It would be easier for them to follow Moses. It was natural. Their parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles would appreciate their loyalty to their cultural upbringing and the teaching of Moses and his law. But the author of Hebrews implores them not to rejoice in Moses, not to boast in their national identity, but to put confidence in the one who is our hope, Messiah Jesus. As we close, we might not be tempted to put our hope in Moses. 
We do, however, experience daily pressure to put our hope in other things, earthly things, inferior things than Jesus Christ. And so as we close, I ask you, what is your hope set on this Christmas season? For us, it might not be Moses, but maybe it's money. We want money. Our hope is in investments. And the market is at like 28,000 points, right? And climbing, maybe 29,000 soon by the end of the year. We put our hope and confidence in money or investments. We put our hope in some career at work, some promotion that we might receive in our business. We might not be tempted to trust in Moses to set our hope on him, but we might be tempted to hope in a country, in a country, in a certain political persuasion, certain political leaders who will save us or rescue us. You see, we as well can put, set our hope or confidence on our culture or our country. And so, my pastoral admonition to you is change. Our hope is not found on any news channel. It's Jesus. He's the one who's going to come and set all things right. So perhaps over the Christmas season, you need to occasionally turn off the big screen TV in your living room and that news channel, and you need to open up your Bible, and you need to take confidence in the only true source of hope that we have, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Perhaps you put your confidence in a house or a home, house that you want to have. This week, Carissa and I, uh, we, we were able, our whole family were able to go through an experience with her aunt and uncle who lost a beautiful home, massive mansion of a home burned down in three hours, three hours. And it reinforced the lesson for us. Our hope is not found in any home, any house, it's not found in any sports. It's not found in academics. Do you prop yourself up with any human areas of hope or longing? If so, you need to turn from them and you need to turn to Christ. Men, men and women, none of these things I've labeled are sure foundations for our hope. Instead, this text tells us that there's a direct correlation between Jesus Christ and his faithfulness and our own ongoing commitment. We must find incentive for our own fidelity to Christ in his faithfulness. He is of more glory than anything else that we might place our confidence in. Let's pray together. Dear fathers, we come before you today. We want to boast in Jesus Help us, Father, learn more of how to do this. Reveal the props, 
the faulty sources of joy and hope that we have and that we set as motivation in our lives, reveal them, and then, Lord, help us put to death these false messiahs, these idols. Perhaps you're here today and you don't have joy and hope in Jesus. He is God's Son who came and died for you for your sins. He took God's punishment for you. And if you're here today and you don't have hope in Him, if you would simply believe in Him and turn to Him for salvation, He would rescue you. The Bible says in Acts 16, 31, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So in this quiet moment, Perhaps there's one or two or a handful of people who have never believed in the name of Jesus. Would you pray and would you exclaim to God that you believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? You believe that he came and that he died and that he rose again for your sins and that you turn from your sins to the Lord. I pray that would be true of every person here today. Father, we thank you for the privilege of looking at this comparison. We see the author of Hebrews who loves to compare Jesus. Today it was Jesus and Moses. Jesus is superior. He's greater. Lord, for us, there are other objects of our attention and focus and hope. We set, our, we set our own hope up on so many different things. Money, work, houses, country, so many other things. Lord, instead, might we learn more of how to put it on our Savior Christ. Thank you. May we hold fast our confidence in Him, set our hope on Him. In Jesus' name. Amen.